Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Midrats. We're really great to have you aboard. If you are with us live, I'd like to extend a conversation, <laughs> extend an invitation to you to join the conversation. You can scroll down to the bottom of the show page. That's where we have the chat room, and you can roll in there with some of the usual suspects. And if you have some observations you'd like to share during the course of the show about the topic at hand, or if there are even some questions you would like for us to address to our guests during the course of the hour, uh, we'd love for you just to go ahead and put it in there, and uh, we'll both be monitoring it during the course of the show. If you find you got to run off and take care of some other business before the show's done, and you want to catch up on what you missed, Remember, if you haven't already, you can go over to iTunes, Spreaker, any other podcast aggregator you may use, and subscribe to MidRats Podcasts for free, and that way we will be ready for you at a time that's more convenient to your busy schedule. And with that out of the way, we're going to go ahead and dive into today's subject. What we're going to look at is um, a nation's foreign policy. It derives more from just the whims of whoever happens to be the, the chief executive at any one time, even though that does change priorities and direction and guidance and intent and all that stuff. Uh, inside the foreign policy uh, bureaucracies, uh, there is uh, some momentum there and some history and some constants, not just in people's, but way of looking at the world. Some of those well-known general descriptions are things such as interventionist, isolationist, internationalist, um, and even a few subspecies of those that will like to argue with each other. And uh, there are some of those subspecies you might be familiar with over the last couple of decades, responsibility to protect, nation building, or for, for those that want to go back a century or so, making the world safe for democracies. Uh, there are different ways of looking at nations, people, interests, and what are the best ways to pursue them. And one of those that, especially in the last eight months or so of the Ukrainian-Russian uh, war, has come to the front is a realist foreign policy. And today we're going to talk about some of its advocates, its intellectual history and foundation, and what practical use does that have uh, for the U.S. and other nations today is they try to shape their investments and people and ideas to 
put their nation in a better position, both in the present and in the future. And our guest for the full hour, returning to MidRaps to discuss this with us, is going to be Emma Ashford. Emma is a senior fellow with the Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program at the Stimson Center. Emma, welcome back to MidRaps. Thanks so much for having me. I'm amazed you invited me back, even though I, I keep getting a boat and a ship confused. <laughs> well, that's that's okay. You're you're not alone. As long as you know they go in the water, I think we're in pretty good shape. And uh, to, to start things off, I thought we'd uh, give you an opportunity to kind of um, set the table, so to speak, in that I mentioned a couple of them in the intro. There are lots of different schools in, in international relations, foreign policy, that um, you know, persons will adhere to in part, are all of, and you have entire organizations that are based upon them, and they all, almost seem like uh, different competing denominations of the same religion because they are philosophically based on how people and interest and power interact together. And I guess to start off with, because we're going to focus on the realism school and what a realist foreign policy is, is Take for a minute to to define that, flesh that out. You know, what are the the foundation corners when somebody says that they adhere or they believe that a, a realist approach to foreign policy is a better way to address challenges? Yeah, so um, thanks for having me on to talk about this because I think a lot of the time – this kind of discussion gets relegated off to the, the academic margins um, and, and people assume that it doesn't matter. Um, but in many ways, these um, paradigms, as, as they're usually called sort of in, in academic scholarship, these paradigms are ways of seeing the world. These are what policymakers have in mind when they decide on policy. You know, everybody has their own model of the world um, and that's what they use and make decisions through that prism. Um, so realism is one of the sort of one of the two big theories of international relations that are out there, or three big ones, I guess, depending on how you count. Um, realism is pretty old school in a lot of ways. Um, it comes out of the 19th century um, it, as a sort of coherent political philosophy. But, you know, People argue that you can go all the way back to Thucydides, um, you know, in the Peloponnesian War. You can go back to uh, Machiavelli in, in Venice, in, in Italy, um, to find people that advocated various versions of political realism and foreign policy. Um, and I would say that, you know, there are a lot of different varieties of realism, and we can, we can talk about some of those, but they all believe in a few basic things. One is that the state is the most important actor on the world stage. Um, so realism is, a, is fundamentally a nationalist foreign policy. It's about the national interest. States do what's right for them in the national interest. Um, another sort of common core that, that all realists share is this idea that states operate in a realm of anarchy. Um, which is to say there's no overarching world government, there's no police, there's nobody you call if you're a country in the, the international system and someone violates your sovereignty, right? And so that's, you know, that state of anarchy is one of the reasons why states feel insecure, why states worry about their own security, their borders, and it's one of the reasons why wars happen. 
Um, and so, you know, then that's sort of the core of realism. And then depending on the version of realism that you subscribe to, um, you know, you might think that, um, you know, human nature matters. Maybe you're very pessimistic about humans and their sort of lust for power. Or maybe you think that, you know, the international system is all about structural factors. So the rise of one power causes fear in another. Um, or maybe you think that there, there might be more out there, that there might be some sort of liberal institutions that could, that could help here. Um, but for, for most realists, that, that idea of a struggle among nations is really the core of what we're talking about. Well, uh, I, you know, I get the impression that realism, in a lot of ways, goes back to the Hobbesian view of the world. That, that, uh, and maybe that's maybe that's just my perception. But I mean, how much of it is? Uh, are there instances in realism where you would do things like a humanitarian intervention, or is, you would only do that if uh, if it was in your in your state's interest for some reason? So you're absolutely right about um, about Hobbes. Tom, Thomas Hobbes is often cited as again as one of those people where you know we didn't call it realism at that time, but he's clearly drawing on similar concepts. And the ideas that that Hobbes talks about in the domestic space, the idea that the state is the one that helps to resolve the problems of the state of nature, um, that that just doesn't apply in the international system. And so you know you're, you're absolutely right that that is that is how most realists the international system. Um, in terms of things like, you know, humanitarian intervention or, or more practical policy, politics, where it gets a little more complicated is different realists or different types of realists have different tolerances for what they're sort of willing to do. So the classical realists, for example, is, is a generation of thinkers that, that basically lived through World War I and World War II. A number of them were, you know, German Jews in exile. Um, and so, you know, they, they make exceptions for things like, you know, humanitarian intervention in some cases as long as it doesn't undermine the national interest of your state to do so. And I think that's sort of the question um, for a lot of realists is, is it, is it possible to do things like humanitarian intervention in a way that, that doesn't end up hurting your own national security interests? And so, you know, you start to get down into more practical debates just about, you know, what happens if we actually do this? Um, you get away from those more abstract principles at some point. I guess you know, in defining our, our terms, another thing to look at is the, perhaps not the polar opposite, but it's the most common debate partner in the realist school is, uh, and I, I think it's important to say when you say liberal or liberalism, it may not be what people think of in the American context. But in your article, and I, I forgot to mention it at the opening, I would highly recommend um, – if after this hour you just need more Emma and you want to hear more Emma um, and a lot of the topics we talk about today, over at Foreign Policy back in the September-October issue, uh, Emma's article uh, titled In Praise of Lesser Evils, Can Realism Repair Foreign Policy, uh, which we're kind of using as the basis of our, our conversation today, it was really, really good. And it's after I read that is when I decided we had to get you on here to discuss this. But in that article, you you – uh, towards the end, you talk about part of the problem 
with later generations, today's um, realist, is the challenge coming from liberalism. And I'll, I'll quote you here for a second. Quote, liberals believe that states can rise above conflict and power politics, although they differ on whether this can be achieved through trade, international institutions, or international law. Realists simply do not believe transcendence is possible, unquote. And when I read that, I thought that really outlined what we have seen in the last few decades, especially at the end of the Cold War, where people thought, you know, we're in a new age, let the, let the doves and butterflies go. Um, where that liberalism, that, that liberal view of the better, of better nature of man, where do you see that that really got, in the recent decades, the biggest push? And uh, what challenges did it run against uh, or underperform, so to speak, that it allowed these other schools, such as realism, to be able to come to the table and discuss different ways to achieve national goals? Yeah, so I guess let me let me start just on the theoretical level here. So liberalism or liberal internationalism, it, it's known by a lot of names um, over the over the decades and actually over the centuries. Because just like realism can go all the way back to Thucydides and people, liberalism or versions of it goes all the way back to Immanuel Kant, um, you know, who talks about overcoming you know, the state of nature in, in some of his work. Um, so basically, li liberal internationalism um, or liberal institutionalism basically believes that there are ways that you could basically mitigate the effects of the state of nature. So institutions reduce transaction costs, um, trade might make wars less attractive, um, depending on where you put constructivists as a theory in here, you might think that, you know, international laws or norms might become widely accepted enough that, that you know, people change and therefore, you know, societies become less violent, um, you know, and when we move past the state of nature. Um, and so these are all, I mean, these are not theories about transformation tomorrow, but they're all about the notion that you can build something better. You can build a liberal order, it will sustain itself, um, and, you know, you, you can get past the state of nature eventually. And so that's, that's sort of liberalism in the IR sense in a nutshell. Um, realism and liberalism tend to go back and forward in history um, a bit like a seesaw whenever one side in this debate oversteps themselves. Um, and I would say that, you know, the first version of this that we see is go back to World War I um, and the ending of World War I, uh, Wilsonianism, um, which came out of Woodrow Wilson's, you know, a, 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 trying to set up the League of Nations, trying to set up international law, ensure that, you know, there would never again be a war. Um, and then, obviously, as we move into the Great Depression, into the 1930s and the rise of, of Hitler and Mussolini and others, this fails. And so the earliest um, sort of classical realist texts, E.H. Carr, um, Morgenthau, um, those are responding to the failures of liberalism in that interwar period. Um, and then liberalism gets a bit more of a boost, you know, in the decades after that. Um, we see a swing back to realism a little in the aftermath of the war in Vietnam, where we see, you know, Nixon and Kissinger embrace aspects of realism in their foreign policy. Um, and then in the post-Cold War period, and this was sort of specifically what you asked about, um, you know, we see the liberalism in the, in the guise of this, I guess, end of history approach. 
um, really getting a push. You know, the idea that the Soviet communism has been defeated, America is the primary power in the world, there's really nothing that can challenge America, and therefore sort of this is the moment to run with, you know, we can build this liberal order, we can make the world a better place. Um, and I think that liberalism then gets manifested in, in different ways over the following three decades. Um, you know, everything from, you know, humanitarian intervention in the Balkans um, to uh, the, you know, the, the freedom agenda of the Bush administration, you know, if we make all countries democracies, then nobody will fight anymore. Um, and it gets manifested in different ways, but it's all the idea that, you know, we can reshape the world. Um, and then so realism has been, I would say, coming back into the picture for near on a decade now, in part because of the excesses of that period. So there's this very much this seesaw, um, you know, in history where realism and liberalism sort of go at one another repeatedly. Um, and when one overreaches, the other tends to do better in debates. Yeah, I I like the quote that you have at the toward the end of your foreign affairs article, um, and it, I guess it's Morgan thought that political realism does not require, nor does it condone indifference to political ideals and moral principles, but it requires indeed a sharp distinction between the desirable and the possible. Can you kind of can you kind of uh, uh, elucidate that a little bit and tell us what that all means in in, in terms of how the realism would 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 approach these these uh finding these sharp distinctions yeah uh, and that is one of my that is one of my favorite quotes um and and one of the reasons i think that quote is one of the reasons why i am somewhat of a classical or neoclassical realist myself um there's a variant of realism structural realism or neorealism that a lot of people probably got taught in college if you've been through ir classes basically since the 70s this is this is what was taught with structural realism um which is very um, scientific in its language. It's very much about states sort of banging into one another like billiard balls. And there's really no place for domestic politics. There's no place for ethics. There's no place for, um, you know, thinking about economic problems. It's, it's a very sparse model of the world. Um, classical realism, the kind exemplified by people like Morgenthau, is richer. Um, and the argument that, that he's making and, and that a lot of these classical realists make effectively is realists are not amoral. They're not heartless. They're just trying to do the best they can or they should be trying to do the best they can in an imperfect world. Um, and there's, a, there's definitely an element of sort of um, patriarchal old white men to this, right? Because the Morgan South frames it sometimes as policymakers have a duty of responsibility to those under their care, right? And explaining why the national interest should trump other interests. But I, I think that the basic principle holds, right? Um, realists, any leader that wishes to be informed by realism, um, you know, they can consider and they should consider ethics and human rights and these, you know, and democracy and these principles, but they cannot let that direct their foreign policy if it's going to drive their nation to ruin. It's interesting, you know, talking about how we look and how we view things. And um, you brought up a, an interesting point when you were discussing uh, Kirshner's book, An Uncertain Future, where um, you discussed in that, you know, Kirshner savages the theories of structural realists 
which he argues are excessive in their devotion to rationalist causes of war. That was just a little quote from the article again. And it had me going back to something I, I, I keep trying to think about when you look at our competing, our major competing schools, I guess, the, the neoliberal and the realist point of view. They're based upon American, British, German, even ancient Greek philosophers. It's a very Western canon and a Western cultural view of the world and trying to understand it and make the right decisions to confront it. And a curious aspect that I have is, are those filters in some ways uh, causing us not to look at challenges and the desires and the motivations or how to negotiate with non-Western cultures? For instance, trying to spot weld a, a one or two or a combination of Western motivations against, say, Russia, which is um, and people argue with me against it, but it's it's not really a Western nation. It's Western adjacent. It's kind of its own thing. And to try to to assume that Russia is a rational actor by our definition, whereas from their definition they may be acting very rationally. Uh, do do these schools that that we argue with each other about um, do they have a way to try to address the different views and motivations of what may be rational or not rational from one macro-cultural group to another? Yeah, I mean, and it's a really great question. And I think this is, um, so the, the article that you're talking about that I wrote is, is actually a review of two books. One of them, Jonathan Kirshner's book, is basically he, he is attacking structural realism and saying we should return to classical realism. And in some ways, I actually find it a very persuasive argument because, you know, in, in pointing out that structural realism can't do what you're asking about right there, right? It cannot tell us about differences in countries. It cannot tell us about how different leaders might perceive rationality differently. It can't tell us how domestic politics matters. Um, it's missing some key ingredients, that structural realism. So the, the sort of more classical realist approaches, or there, there's also this thing called neoclassical, which is, you know, basically taking structural realism and adding domestic politics and things to it. But what all of those let you do is then start to ask some of those questions. Um, and, you know, I, I think without getting into sort of cultural essentialism, which does, is, is kind of a, a problematic way to study different countries, you know, I think there's lots of cases where we can say that the circumstances in which leaders make decisions about their security is shaped by these domestic factors, you know, how your government is structured, you know, whether the leader is elected or appointed or reliant on family ties to hold his position or something like that. Um, how nations view their security. There's this concept of uh, called ontological security that was popular a little while ago, but it's basically like different nations think about their security in different ways. Um, and so, you know, the, the example that I'll, I'll give you here is just, um, I think, you know, that the conflict in Ukraine um, really highlights for me, um, you know, the notion that, that Russian leaders do tend to think about their security in a slightly different way than many Western states do, at least these days. Um, Russian leaders still very much, I think, think of security in terms of territory, um, you know, territory that they hold, that they can use as a buffer zone. Um, 
and if we don't think about the ways that they you know categorize their own security we can't quite understand what drives them and so you know this is all kind of inside realist baseball but i think it's important because it helps us better understand you know which version of these theories helps us understand the world well it isn't that some of the debate among realists and others that that uh and i've seen this in a number of places that some people are alleging that that nato's expansion uh further and further to the to the east of of the heartland of europe depending on whether your heartland theory is <laughs> and never mind we'll go there but uh it, it is a cause for for that concern i mean that russia views ukraine as being in its uh, and i hate to use this phrase but i'm sure it's still valid its sphere of influence i mean they they're they, they're used to having that as you say buffer state so is that a driving factor in some of the debate that that uh, is going on among the, the the various groups of realists yeah so i mean i would say it's less a discussion among realists and more that this is currently a huge debate that is pitting realists against liberal internationalists and others um and and you're right the the general realist argument is that nato expansion um caused the war in ukraine um and i think you know there are a lot of arguments you could make against that um if you back off just a little from that extremely over-specified hypothesis and you you argue instead that you know the advance of the west into areas historically important to russia whether it's nato whether it's the european union russia's loss of power in those areas all those countries pulling away from it um that those have created security concerns um in moscow then I think it becomes a much more viable argument. Um, and so, you know, I think, we're, again, we're having this argument over this one extremely structural version of realism, um, but there are other versions that explain things substantially better. I, I got a little grin on um, one of the articles that you referenced in your, in your article in the two books, and that was Robert Gil, Gilpin's article with the title no one loves a realist and that's one thing that that i think we've both seen in detail especially on that uh that wonderfully civilized uh place for discourse called twitter is that people will quickly react with a lot of emotion when you try to make a, a rational point and for those that like personality types uh, just to personalize it, I'm I'm an INTJ, and I'm constantly going around looking at people like, what? What did I say? You know, I didn't know that this was upsetting. Um, is that a lot of the critiques come back when you try to make a rational point about um, consequences of use of of power? That people will say you don't care about uh, ethics or human rights when when actually, if in, in a quiet moment, you can draw a direct line. Uh, perhaps uh, a different path to talk about where it does have a higher ethic and, and can address human rights depending upon what perspective you're taking. Um, is that a, a significant problem in, in trying to get people to uh, think about some of the issues that realists in foreign policy are saying? And have you seen some people that have been pretty successful in, in bridging that point of friction when people want to throw ethics and, and human rights against those that are trying to propose a, a different path than perhaps a neoliberalist 
view would want to take. Yeah, it's um, that 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 Gilpin article is is really funny because I mean it was written in I think the 1970s, maybe the 1980s, um, and it's making the exact argument you just made. You know, pre pre Twitter, pre social media, you know, pre cable news. It's the same argument that Gilpin's making, which is that realists, um, you know, face difficulties in advancing their viewpoints. Um, because, you know, we all naturally as human beings recoil from arguments that suggest that we should, you know, that suggest that there are people out there suffering and we can't help them. And I think that's a very human emotion, um, but it does make these these arguments somewhat more difficult. Um, and, you know, what, another problem, and I think this problem is even more pronounced than it was when Gilpin wrote that article. Um, and I don't think it's because of social media, etc. I think it's because we are transitioning from a period in world politics where America really did have a preponderance of power, right? We were by far and away the most powerful, most militarily capable, most important state in the system. Um, we were we are very secure as a country, and we had all this extra um, capacity. Uh, and we didn't really, you know, suffer consequences too badly for overstepping ourselves in the last three decades. And so basically we've had the run of the world for three decades with not that much pushback. Um, and we're now transitioning back into a period more akin to traditional multipolarity where there are other powers. Um, and you used the, the phrase sphere of influence earlier, you know, I think that's one of the phrases that really just sets people off because it conjures up this notion that America is, um, you know, giving away small countries to China and Russia to do with as they like. Um, but that's really the wrong way to think about spheres of influence. You know, from, from a realist point of view, a sphere of influence is basically just the place where you think, as a, you know, you as a great power think it's going to be too costly to try and stop that other great power from doing what they want to do. So, you know, do we want to get into um, a, a nuclear war over the Soviets in Hungary in 1956, right? And the U.S. government said absolutely not. Um, that's a sphere of influence right there. Um, but because we've had this free reign in the world for the last three decades, we no longer remember that that's how we usually handle things. And so I think that these arguments are even harder to make than they used to be. Well, I'm sitting here thinking about the difference between. Well, let me. I'm, I'm thinking about practical applications of, of this of this uh, foreign policy, and, and 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 one way I look at it and is that if if in Afghanistan after 9/11, if we had gone in and done a punitive expedition, gone in and and got those people we thought were responsible for for supporting Al Qaeda and and its efforts, and then left as opposed to staying and trying to uh, nation build, uh, is that, is that would, would the punitive expedition be more realist or, or, or just cold, uh, cold nastiness on my part? No, I, I think the punitive expedition would have been more realist. And I think, you know, I think for myself and for many realists, that's, you know, 
that's the approach that they would have taken at the time. And for those that were in Washington, it was what they advocated was, you know, 2002, 2003, time to basically get out of Afghanistan. You know, many, many prominent realists advocated against the war in Iraq in the first place, but were in favor of going into Afghanistan to, to get the Taliban to get al-Qaeda, right? Because there's a concrete difference there in terms of U.S. security. Um, and I think, you know, this is one place where I think U.S. foreign policy has swung a little um, towards realism. We had the new national security strategy released this week, um, and it's, it's a fundamentally liberal internationalist document. Um, but the one concession it makes to realism is it explicitly says we will not try to remake societies with the military. We will not engage in regime change. You know, we now know this doesn't work. And so that has, you know, those failures, I think, have finally percolated into the mainstream um, on that one issue. To the uh, critiques that I see now and then that I, I'd be interested to see how, how you would knock those back across the court is, uh, again, a lot of the responses you get can be kind of abrupt and mildly insulting, but that's okay. That's uh, the creative friction we're looking for there. But the one critique is the fact that people will say, well, there's a thin line between realism and appeasement when it comes to power. And the second one is that realism is really only a, uh, an interesting way of, of looking for things pre-conflict. That once a conflict starts, that a realist view of foreign policy isn't um, isn't a value and isn't useful. I think uh, Tom Nichols made made a comment something along those lines. How do you respond to those critiques? I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. Um, so the, the the first of those, let me say, you know, that there's a, a thin line between realism and appeasement. Um, I, I would argue that sometimes there is no line, right? Uh, realists. Realism is sometimes knowing when it's not worth it, right? Um, and that principle is not necessarily always worth fighting for. And that doesn't mean it's, it's always the case. And that doesn't mean we should always appease. Certainly not. But there will be times when realism says it's better to appease. It's better to withdraw. Think of, you know, think of Nixon and Kissinger getting us out of the Vietnam War, for example. You know, the only, the only, Thing they tried to do was make it look like the collapse wasn't immediate, right? So there's an element of realism that is that. Um, it's not just that. Uh, and then the second, the second point about you know realism's no use once a war has started. Um, that that is also not true. I mean, we there are highly, highly rationalist game theoretic models in the realist pantheon. Um, which basically are about the bargaining theory of war. And, you know, once you're in a war, how do you use things like battlefield games, losses on both sides to determine what the outcome might look like? And I mean, this is, this is just the modern iteration of Clausewitz saying, you know, war is politics by other means. Um, war is a way, if you can't resolve your differences before a war, war is a way of determining who comes out on top. Um, and again, that's, I mean, I don't see why that disproves realism or suggests that realism wouldn't be a reasonable way to, to look at this. That would suggest that as soon as you're in a war, everybody is suddenly irrational in every way, and that just doesn't seem to me to be accurate. Well, 
That raises some interesting questions on people who demand unconditional surrender. I mean, we had, we had, uh, I mean, Grant took a lot of heat for accepting uh, the way he treated the Confederate Army after after uh, at Appomattox, but during World War II, uh, you know, it was it was we're gonna we're gonna fight until until we get unconditional surrender from the Japanese and the Germans. There was not there was not a I know there were overtures from. Uh, through various sources to to seek a non-total uh, victory resolution of those world's wars, but uh, you know, what, what, is that is that which one of those is realism and which one is is just we, we're so mad we're going to go ahead and and see this thing through the end. Well, I mean, I think there are times when a realist might advocate for absolute victory, and I think you know World War II, particularly against the Germans, was one of those. Um, that said, it's, it's actually not entirely true that the U.S. pushed the Japanese into an unconditional surrender. Um, we pushed for that. We The atomic bombs, when the Japanese said they wouldn't give an unconditional surrender, um, the Japanese came back and said, we still can't give you an unconditional surrender, but the only condition is you must leave the emperor in his role. And the U.S. accepted that. So even there, where you know they're giving up everything else, there was one condition in that surrender. And that is the more normal thing. That is the more historically common thing, is to have some conditions on both sides. Um, unconditional surrenders, um, total conquest is surprisingly rare in world history. Um, and, you know, so, so I think it's not even as much here about sort of realists versus liberals as it is just about, you know, are you pragmatic? in how you approach peace negotiations, because if you push all the way to absolute victory, um, it's going to be much, much more costly for you than it might be otherwise. I think the um, pragmatism, especially when you're dealing with with imperfect and changing human beings, um, it's a healthy way to go, because it does in many ways give you more flexibility. However, whether it's in your personal or professional life, uh, if you're too idealistic, that can quickly lead to rigidity. And, you know, that type of flexibility, uh, one thing I was interested in, in seeing you know, your thoughts on is you mentioned a, a couple of good points that kind of ties into a question I said before, you know, trying to look at a Russian leader's motivations and incentives and justifications as if they were an American or a British or a French leader with very different cultures and backgrounds and points of view and history, everything else. But you, you talked about diagnosing motivations and different reactions in, in how you would want to approach things if you're looking at Putin and his actions in Ukraine, for example. You know, are they, is a nation acting out of ambition, which would give you one response, and as opposed to if they're acting out of fear? From, from a realist point of view, how would that shape where you're willing to compromise, move, or when would be the most opportune time to try to step forward and invite somebody to come to an agreed resolution? Yeah, and this is one of those areas where there are disagreements inside realism um, about what drives countries to war. Um, and the classical realists, really did see it much more about things like ambition and honor and, um, you know, just hubris. You know, human nature is the reason 
for the, you know, the, the, the fallen nature of humanity is why, you know, sometimes people who are leaders start wars. Um, structural realism and neoclassical realism tend much more to sort of bigger systemic explanations for war. Um, you know, maybe sometimes it's a leader who is overly ambitious or, you know, um, Saddam Hussein, for example, right in 1991, um, there are some rational explanations you can get to for why he started that war, but there's a lot of it that really was his own ambition. Um, but most of the time, you know, the structuralists or the neoclassicals would argue um, it's, it's kind of about the security dilemma. It's about, you know, states feeling threatened by one another, even if that threat is not necessarily intended. Um, and, and so this is the NATO expansion argument for Russian aggression, which is, you know, the idea that Russia starts to feel that NATO is pushing up and up and up to its borders and starts to feel encircled. And so they strike back. They, they, you know, they fight Georgia in 2008, they attack Ukraine in 2014, with the goal of preventing NATO from being able to, um, you know, incorporate those countries. And so that sort of security dilemma explanation, um, that's much less, that's not really about human nature as much as that's about how states interact with one another. Yeah, I, don't, I think Russia, uh, during the Balkan War, their intervention on behalf of uh, Serbia uh, kind of tipped their hand at where their what their approach was going to be. I mean, they they uh, we almost went to war over the, the airport in Pristina. So it's it's uh, one of those things that that makes you think about um, the interests that you know. I, was it Palmerson or whoever said that nations don't have friends; they have interests. Is you know. And I think this is what Sal's been driving at is, you know, we have to learn to judge the interests of other people and assess that. Is is that part of the of the schoolwork that's done by by people studying uh, realist uh, international relations? Yeah. So, um, you know, the idea that I think a lot a lot of realist work. I mean, so some of it's very theoretical, but for folks that are in the in the policy space. Um, a lot of it is thinking about sort of, um, you know, empathy, strategic empathy. How do you look at other countries and try and figure out what is driving them? Can we reduce the points of friction? Um, or perhaps, you know, we are just on a collision course. And, you know, for, for myself, I, I feel like, you know, as a, even as a realist, you know, this is sort of driving my perception of China. I'm not convinced that there is a way to avoid those frictions with China because I think they're being driven by factors that aren't all about. Um, so trying to figure out what it is that drives other countries, whether there are ways that you can sort of mitigate those concerns um, without paying the costs of a war, that would be a more realist approach. Um, whereas I think liberal internationalists in many cases would say, well, you know, there is an absolute principle here at stake, the principle of, you know, whatever it is, democracy, human rights, territorial integrity of states, um, you know, we have to defend that. Um, and so we just have to deter other states. Um, and, and the problem, and one of the, the sort of the big, uh, you know, the big scary things about the world is, you know, those two approaches have very different prescriptions. Um, quite often those prescriptions in, in policy terms are actually opposed to one another and you don't find out until afterwards what was driving the other state. So this is, this is 
why models matter so much, because they determine what you think is driving other states, the responses you take to that. Um, and if you get it wrong, you know, you may end up in a worse place. I like the comment you made before, because I, I think it, it adds to that um, creative fr friction and that healthy churn in discussions that uh, when, when everybody, I'm always worried when everybody's in agreement, uh, especially when they're in the side, the same point of view of things. And uh, one of the neat things, when you look at the post-Cold War period, and I don't know whether there's uh, comparable people today that you have in mind that um, might be similar to these two individuals uh, when it comes to China. But back in the Cold War, when we were facing the, the threat or the challenge, however you want to view it, of the Soviet Union, two of the big players that are often looked at as realists are Henry Kissinger and George Keenan. And they were very different individuals, even different political parties they worked for the most, different views of um, life, so to speak. But they both had what could be reasonably called a realist view of foreign policy. Where, where were they more alike than different in how they approached the interests of the U.S.? And if you have some people who might be similar or different, but are looking at the challenge of China from, a, from the realist perspective in that regard, it's always interesting to hear names. Yeah, um, and, and I, you know, I draw on that, that sort of Kennan versus Kissinger um, dichotomy in, in the article that I wrote, because I think it is really, really interesting. And, you know, there are some realists who are just so uncomfortable with the idea of Henry Kissinger that they're just like, oh, he's never a realist. Um, but both Kennan and Kissinger shared, I think, you know, a, a pragmatism about the possible, um, versus the, you know, the desirable in foreign policy um, and a willingness to sort of look at the world and see what we, what we might be able to achieve um, and what we probably can't achieve. And so, you know, Kennan was much more a, a writer, a philosopher, he, you know, head of state policy planning, you know, so he's doing a lot of writing about how to think about the Soviet Union and containment and, you know, what can we achieve? Because we can't, you know, destroy the Soviet Union. So how can we figure out how to live with them without letting them gain the advantage? Uh, and then Kissinger is much more involved in kind of the policy side, um, you know, making these, um, at least during his time in government, you know, making these choices, um, you know, and, and just being willing to think about things that might have seemed almost kind of crazy to other people because it was the pragmatic choice. So figuring out how to make contact with the Chinese, how to get Nixon to Beijing, how to, you know, chip China away from the Soviet Union. Um, that is, you know, realpolitik in the extreme. Um, but for both of them, they were trying to think about what was possible, um, not about, you know, oh, well, we have to figure out how to push back against both Russia and uh, both Soviet Union and against China because they're both evil communist states. Um, you know, it, it was about figuring out how to gain the political advantage. Um, and so, you know, the, there are, I think, a number of people operating in that more pragmatic space today. Um, and there are some serious differences. Um, you know, I mean, I'll give you, I guess, just a couple of folks. Um, so, you know, 
people like um, Stephen Wertheim at Carnegie or Josh Schifrinson, who's at the um, University of Maryland now, um, my boss at Simpson, Chris Preble, um, or folks like Steve Waltz at Harvard, you know, they fall more, I think, on the Kennan side of that, you know, which is you're thinking about the big strategic picture, you're trying to figure out how long term we might gain the advantage. Um, and maybe you're a little more defensive in your orientation. That is to say, you're going to be more cautious, you're not going to, you know, expand right out to the edge of China's, um, you know, borders, you're going to try and prevent that kind of conflict from coming. Um, and then there's folks like, um, well, I guess Albert Colby would be one example where he's clearly still a realist thinker, but he's very much an offensive realist thinker in that he thinks that, you know, the U.S. should be expanding as far as possible, building up its forces as much as possible to deter China. And, you know, that is how we'll handle this problem. So there's, again, there's different flavors of realists today, um, but they're all in a different place than the kind of liberal internationalist approach. Well, um, yeah, I was just thinking of what I call, you know, mostly failed states. So, we, you know, there are states that are states in name only. And, and the realist, is, is there a realist view that these states like Afghanistan or Somalia or some of these other places that are notorious uh, bad spots on the face of the earth. Um, it, it, would you, just, I mean, would a, would a, a, a true realist uh, looking at these say these are just not worth the trouble? We, you know, we have to pay some attention, but we're not going to go in and, and deal with all the tribal issues and all that stuff. We're just going to kind of see if we can keep the, these things from boiling over into something big or, or just ignore them completely. Or what, what you know, how, how would the realist approach these, these small states that are, you know, very tribal in nature? Yeah, I mean, so the most realists, I think, over the last pretty much two decades at this point have argued that it is not it is not worth America's time and effort um, to try and build societies in other places, um, you know, within within or among realists, you know, opinions vary from these states just aren't worth it at all to, you know, well, we need to keep an eye on things like terrorist training camps and, you know, maybe we need to do some stuff with drones, you know. So there's, there's a range of opinion there, but I don't really think any realist um, or any true realist, I guess, thinks that you should be, you know, out in the world trying to stop every problem before it arises. Um, that is much more the approach that many liberal internationalists or liberal interventionists in Washington have taken. Um, you know, the, the argument that they're making instead is that, you know, if we don't deal with small problems overseas, that they will become bigger and come and threaten us at home. And I think most realists, you know, myself included, would say that's mostly ridiculous. There's a few, you know, there are some examples like 9-11 where we have clearly um, we have missed things, but it's as much an intelligence failure as anything else. And it's not about, you know, it's not because we didn't engage in nation building in Afghanistan 20 years earlier that this happened. As you've probably gathered by now, I'm, I'm a fan of Kirshner's. <laughs> a lot of what he says, I kind of nod my head to. And um, kind of building what you talked about just a minute ago, um, specifically, it made me think about Operation Odyssey Dawn, which was the operations in Libya that wound up with that rather uh, 
gruesome death of Gaddafi, who in his older age was actually kind of cooperative towards us. But um, one phrase I've used a lot in the past is um, war is a dark room, because at the end of the day, I, I think a lot of realist or realist adjacent people are, are doing their best to avoid conflict, because regardless of what war you, you think you're entering when you start, and you know Putin's learning this in spades, uh, it, you don't know what it is until you get in there. And you use an interesting phrase that was kind of like that, and I don't know whether it directly comes from Kirshner, but it definitely vibes with it, is, uh, and it's something I'm going to steal and use in the future as my dark room analogy is growing a little bit stale, but, uh, quote, war is a plunge into radical uncertainty. And that's what made me think of the Libya, Libya operations, and I thought that at the time. It's like, are people really playing out where this is going to go, where we're going to walk in into uh, a structure and a nation that we really don't understand well, we're going to break everything, but then not really have a plan to do anything afterwards, just assuming it's naturally going to flow back together. Uh, I've always thought that's been a, a, a good tool in the realist point of view is – to be able to point in those circumstances. And I don't know whether the ultimate solution to challenges like that would have been, uh, which I think was the realist argument at the time is, you know, don't just do something, stand there is there are times that it's best just not to do anything. And do you see that, that what we did in Libya is a good example of that, uh, of those circumstances where people just don't fully appreciate what, stepping into that dark room can result in. It's a great quote. It is it's from Kirshner, the, the war is a, rap, is a plunge into radical uncertainty. And I, I love that quote, too, because I, I think it really does sum up the notion that, you know, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. And, I mean, if, I think that anything shows us that that is the case, it is Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. On paper, his army should have crushed Ukraine in days. Um, and here we are eight months later, and, you know, the Russian army is getting its kicked to it in eastern Ukraine. Um, but, you know, I think that the question about Libya um, is, is a good one because we, we, you know, we engaged in a humanitarian intervention in Libya um, under circumstances of limited information, right? So we had some information coming from on the ground. What we now know is it was shaped by um, by some of the actors on the ground, but particularly by regional states. Um, so some of the information and intelligence that was coming in was not unbiased. Um, and, you know, when we started that conflict, um, it had been assumed that we would engage in sort of some airstrikes, and it morphed very quickly into a regime change operation. Um, and so we, we, you're right, we started down that path, and it sort of just went, we, we ended up, we went along with it, and the consequences ended up being extremely severe, right? A civil war in that country that is basically still going on. It's not as bad as it used to be. 
um, massive refugee flows across the Mediterranean, um, a flow of small arms out of Libya into most of the rest of the Middle East um, and North Africa, which is causing violence elsewhere. Um, and I think, you know, the sort of perhaps the most consequential one and the one that people don't really pay as much attention to is the lesson that states like Russia and China took from this. We know that Vladimir Putin was extraordinarily upset about Gaddafi's death. We know that he watched the video over and over um, and believed that the U.S. was coming for him next. And we know that both the Russians and the Chinese started to talk about building policies to prevent U.S. regime change in their countries after this intervention. So, you know, we have all of these downstream effects, some of which have serious implications for our own security. Um, and that is, you know, that is, I think, one of the, the reasons why realists would advocate against that kind of war of choice. You know, there are going to be times when you're in a war that is that is not a, a choice in the same way. And, and you, you know, I think you could make the argument the war in Ukraine right now is, is one such example. You know, we don't know where this is headed, but it doesn't look like it's headed in a good direction for us or for anybody. Um, but at least that is more something that was forced on us versus, you know, the choices that we made in Libya and Iraq. Well, that kind of brings up a... I need some I need some some help here to, uh, if you can explain the difference between offensive realism and the defensive realism. Sure, yeah. So um basically um it, it depends whether you think states so all realists think that states um want to um ensure their own security, right? Everyone thinks that. Um how do you think states do that? is whether you're a defensive or an offensive realist. Um, if you think that states um, are cautious, that they basically try to maximize, their, they try to maximize security by making themselves, you know, hard to digest, by fortifying their borders, by making sure they're not threatened by other states, you know, that's defensive realism. Um, offensive realism suggests that states actually um, advance their own security by expanding, right? So they build empires, they expand out into a sphere of influence, they conquer other territories, they maximize power rather than just trying to maximize security. So that's the difference between offensive and defensive realists. I would say the vast majority of realists that are like working today, with the exception of John Mearsheimer, almost everybody else is a defensive realist. I guess, and you actually mentioned him once in your your article that the uh, I guess one of the ultimate offensive realists would have been Bismarck in his real politic rolled in with a little bit of, of blood and iron. So it's not just a an American concept in view, and we could probably do a whole another hour just on Bismarck uh, uh, real politic. We might have to to bring in a couple of our German friends that we've had on Midrats in the past, but uh, we're coming near the end of the hour, Emma and. Uh, I wanted to, to, to give an opportunity for you to, uh, for the listeners, you, you just published a book, I believe it was this year or at the end of last year, um, if you wanted to, to speak to that for a little bit about petrostates. Um, and also, uh, if we could get a preview, what are you investing your intellectual talents in now that uh, we can look forward? And where's a good place for listeners to track what you are working on? Great. Well, yeah, so um, I do have a book out. It's called Oil, the State, and War, and it is 
is a study of the foreign policy implications of oil production and export. So if you're interested in countries like, like Russia or like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, um, countries that produce and export a lot of oil um, and how that shapes their foreign policy, um, you know, this, this book might be something you might be interested in. Um, I look at, you know, why do petrostates start more wars, um, the ways petrostates prop up the arms industry, um, and then the way that some petrostates can use their, their energy resources um, to leverage, you know, concessions from other states. So there's some studies of the, the oil weapon in there and pipelines in Europe, which was all written before this year, but um, still somewhat relevant. Um, and, you know, questions about OPEC and the U.S.-Saudi relationship. So um, there's, there's a lot in there, but I, I think people might find, might find some things that would interest them um, if so. Um, and then for myself, I'm, I'm mostly working these days on um, – things related to the war in Ukraine, um, which is, uh, you know, sort of the big ongoing policy concern. I think we've reached a point in the conflict where, um, you know, for, for quite some time, I think the, the realist approach to this war converged pretty closely with some of the other approaches to the war. And I think we're, we're at the stage where that's not the case anymore. Um, so I'm, I'm doing some more work on that. And then hopefully um, I've got another book I'm working on on, you know, what would a realist grand strategy look like in the 2020s? So all long term, but, you know, keeps me busy. Well, Emma, that's, that's great. And again, we really appreciate you taking an hour of your time uh, this weekend to join us and look forward to, to reading your, your next book and uh, hopefully have a chance at some point down the road to talk to you again. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being with us, and I just bought your book, by the way. <laughs> That's beautiful. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. Until next time, I hope everybody has a great Navy Day. Cheers. Maloney wants to marry me and so leave the strand and pick a billy or you'll be to blame for love has fairly drove me silly hoping you're the same It's a long way to Tipperary It's a long way to go It's a long way to Tipperary Yeah.